As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, you know what I'm not looking forward to in 2023? <laughs> uh, it could be any Maybe number of things, but what? Uh, well, I got a pretty, I got a decent price on a uh, rental uh, mm-hmm. in my where I live in Manhattan right. during Didn't the pandemic. Didn't you move during the pandemic? I did. I- like, I got a pretty good pandemic deal. And I am not looking forward. And I think, like, you know, yeah, pr- pretty good rent. I'm not, I'm worried that at some point, like, the cut my landlord will perceive that, like, there is a gap between what we're paying and what the market prices are and that my rent bill is going to shoot up. Well, I got a uh, not very good deal on a rental <laughs> post pandemic last year. And I've already gotten my one year, um, like, rent <sighs> renewal notice. And uh, it was an automatic 5% pay increase, which kind of sucks. Yeah, that's not great. But wait, you did you did negotiate with them a little bit? I did. <laughs> I, I said, I said, is there any way we could compromise on the rent? To which their response was, uh, they knocked seventy five dollars off of their um, proposed hike. off their proposed hikes. So okay. I'm saving myself seventy five dollars a month, which relative I, to the counterfeit. I am. I am grateful for the gesture. However, relative to um, the substantial New York rent, um, it's not. It's right. not that much, okay. but I tried. So we know that like, all right, so obviously rent is really important for mm-hmm. all kinds of reasons. It's another one of these highly salient prices that people pay. It's a huge component of the inflation measures. What we know about the measures of rent seem to be two things. One is various private sector measures mm. seem to have been turning down for a while. That's clear. And it also seems like... Um, Uh, It's only a matter of time before that feeds into the official measures that the Fed likes to look at. We had a good episode last year with Omer Mm -hmm. Sharif talking about why there's that gap and how to think about reconcile these two measures. But like, how far is it going to come down? Will there be a year in which our rent doesn't go up at all? Will other people in other parts of the country see rent? This is like a huge topic. We've never actually done like a pure rent episode as far as I know. No, we haven't. And there are all these interesting little things you can start to pick out of the topic. So for instance, you know, in New York, maybe rents are starting to come down now, but not nearly as quickly as in other parts of the country. New York is a big part of rent CPI, right? right? And so if New York prices stay sticky, it could have an 
overall effect on on national rent prices and also i'm i'm interested in talking also about some of the big picture developments yeah. that we have seen in the space you know people talk a lot about private equity moving into yeah. multifamily housing whether or not that's pushing up prices uh the impact of new technology as well yeah on how landlords actually come up with the prices that they charge people for their buildings. Lots to talk about. Well, you know, and we did talk about this recently with Connor Sen, who I thought made a mm. really fascinating point, which is that like the rent, like apartment rent specifically, multifamily housing, it just has gone from strength to strength mm -hmm. over the last like 15 years. You know, it's like after the great financial crisis, no one's gonna wanna own a home anymore, let's rent. Right. Um, millennials don't wanna live in the suburbs, let's move to the city and rent. Millennials are delaying having kids, let's you know no reason to you know uh more rent like at every turn multifamily dwellings have won and there's this boom and if you do a chart showing construction and multifamily versus construction and single family mm. single family is totally slumped never got even back to anywhere near like pre-crisis levels whereas multifamily just keeps booming yeah is that a permanent thing or could like there be like this sort of like minsky moment for multifamily and for rental options where it's like the luck suddenly runs out. right and so much of the market right now housing in general so single family plus multifamily so much of the outlook is predicated on what you think is going to happen to supply and yes. capacity yes. so that is really a key question are the multifamily homes going to keep getting built well let's talk about it with someone who can uh, answer all of these questions for us we are going to be speaking with chris salviati he is the senior housing economist at apartment list he's going to answer our questions uh chris thank you so much for coming on odd lots hi thanks so much for having me on so chris can i ask my landlord for a rent cut when in the next couple months like is it is that reasonable <laughs> well I, I guess it depends when you signed your lease joe it okay. sounds like you got kind of one of those pandemic deals yeah. that you know particularly in new york city that was one of the markets where yes. rents actually fell really sharply in that first year of the pandemic uh so we are really seeing the market having turned a corner a little bit over these past few months prices have been coming down uh for four straight months now in our, our national rent index. Wow. Uh, but you know, if, if you're still paying that uh, late 2020 level, then you might not necessarily right, uh, right. be uh, eligible for a discount Good at this point. point. Good point. So when we say rents are going down, and I, I saw on your Twitter feed, I, I think you have uh, the national median rent down now 3% from its August 2022 peak. What does that actually mean? Like, how are we actually putting together a national or you know even a city rent price and I, I guess my question really is when when prices start to move like that how much of it is reflected in the actual figures that people are paying for their apartments the way that we calculate our price index it, it's basically a repeat transaction index and so we can see you know on our platform we're able to track individual units over time so we can see for all of the apartments that were listed on apartment list for rent this month uh, and that subsequently got rented, we can look back and see when was the last time that that exact unit was rented previously, compare those two prices and see how much that price changed for that individual unit, which really you know controls for sort of uh, quality uh, across the inventory. And then we basically aggregate those up uh, for uh, the individual geography, whether that be a city level or a national level index. Uh, and our, our national index is basically just an aggregation of all the inventory that we see across the country. And so that, you know, 3% discount that we talked about starting from the August peak to uh, present, that that's, should be reflective of, of what folks are seeing if you're going out on the market and signing a new lease. 
So as an economist, I mean, you know, I guess like there's like uh, the index construction, as you described it, I'm sure it's a, you know, I'm sure that's a pretty tricky technical challenge. And, you know, we had that conversation last year with Omer Sharif. There's these coming up with the price index is never trivial, even if it's just like a sort of like repeat methodology. Uh, but I'm curious, like, for, as an, uh, from a modeling perspective, like, okay, strength of the consumer, strength of the labor market has got to be like one uh, important factor. People are losing jobs. People's wages are going down. There's like got to be a, a limit to how much uh, rent price increase can be sustained. What else goes into that supply? Like, how do you think about sort of like modeling a forecast for the price of rent? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think in the... Uh at the highest level framework, it is, as you said, kind of a, a demand and supply question. Yeah. I think when we talk about housing, you know, obviously the supply response uh, is a lot more prolonged than it is maybe in some other markets. You know, it mm. takes a long time to permit and, and get construct new construction built. And so in the short term, you know, I think the, the kind of the big up and down swings that we see are really driven by demand. And when we're talking about demand here, it, it's really household formation, you know, how many new people are right. striking out on their own and forming new households. Uh, and, and obviously, when we're talking about the rental market in particular, there's also the dynamics of uh, how that household formation kind of uh, interacts between the for sale and the rental side of the market. So, uh, you know, right now, what we're seeing, obviously, sky high mortgage rates, things are really difficult on the for sale side as well. And so folks are staying in rental units for longer, that creates tightness. Uh, but the overall household formation numbers, you know, if we go back to 2021, that's when that was really, uh, you know, taking off. And when we saw the really astronomical rent hikes over the past year, and particularly the past few months, that's really started to slow down quite a bit. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So one thing I've always wondered, are, are rent hikes and rent decreases sort of asymmetrical in the sense that rents tend to go up a lot faster than they mm. come down? This is my, you know... I, at the risk of, risk of um, being very biased here, but my personal experience with <laughs> rent is that it tends to go up and doesn't tend to come down as much. Is that actually the case? 
Yeah, you know, when we look at our rent index over time, it's definitely the case that uh, it tends to, to march upward rather than downward. We do see, it is typical to see a little bit of a, of a decline in the late fall and winter months. There's just a, a pretty clear seasonal pattern to rent trends and fewer folks move in the winter. So uh, properties that do have vacancies to fill will often offer modest discounts at that time of year. Uh, but again, that is really just kind of a, a temporary seasonal trend. And, uh, you know, at um, once activity picks back up, rent growth tends to turn positive again. And that positive growth almost always outweighs those seasonal declines. Uh, you know, our, our rent index goes back to 2017. So we don't have a huge history, but at least over those years, we've never seen a year in which uh, nominal rent growth has been negative. Uh, even if you go back to the aftermath of the Great Recession and you look at rent CPI over that period, you know, it was basically flat or we didn't really see uh, much of a, a nominal decline there either. Mm. So just on this topic, I, I imagine that you must speak to landlords on, on a fairly regular basis. What's the decision process for them like when it mm. comes to setting the rents? Like, what are they looking at? What are the different factors that might go into them actually pulling the trigger on either a substantial rent hike or some sort of decline? You know, I should say a lot of the inventory that we have on apartment list in particular, and that feeds into our rent index, uh, it, it does tend to uh, skew towards a particular segment of the market, that being, you know, the large uh, professionally managed multifamily complexes. So mm -hmm. thinking here of, you know, big apartment buildings that, that have 50 or more units. Uh, and so those professionally managed buildings tend to be pretty sophisticated in how they set prices. Uh, and actually, there are uh, price setting algorithms, softwares that kind of uh, tend to come bundled along with property management softwares. And so a lot of these properties are, are actually, you know, using these kind of algorithmic price setting techniques where, you know, the the, the, the software uh, that they're using is also uh, kind of integrated with various other properties throughout the market. And so they have a lot of really good real time data on, you know, those demand changes as they see them in real time. And so I think, you know, when we're talking about this professionally managed segment. I think it can be pretty sophisticated. Obviously, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got your, you know, your, your kind of mom and pop landlords, folks who maybe only own a couple of rental units. And I, I think that segment of the market, maybe the considerations are a little bit different, probably a little bit slower to respond to those uh, market changes, and also probably a greater emphasis on just wanting to avoid vacancies right. and having tenants that will be there for a long time. So it definitely varies based on, you know, the part of the market that you're talking about. I actually wanted to bring I mean, I, it's sort of getting a little bit away from the macro, but that's fine. You know, like it's always seems to me when I think about this question, which is that if you have a, uh, a tenant who is both um, good at uh, like regularly paying their bills, is not regularly laid, has never had an issue where they need to be evicted or something, there seems like there must be like a pretty big risk in pricing them out because A, like it doesn't take very long of a vacant apartment, it would seem to me, it wouldn't take very long to lose a lot of the gains you would get from the rent price increase. So if you have like a month vacancy, that's a lot of lost money. And then there's the wild card of like, okay, then you fill it. But what if the person who comes in is like not great about paying the rent or gonna damage the place? 
And so I'm curious, like, whether some of the software, these pricing decisions, like, take into account about, like, existing tenant quality and the potential, like, cost of losing them. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. As far as kind of the the, the algorithmic portion of yeah. it, you know, those are they're sort of proprietary algorithms. Sure. And, you know, it's not something that, you know, we had apartmentless. We don't have kind of a version of that. So I don't actually have a, a good sense of whether or not, you know, this dynamic that we're talking about as far right. as kind of and in quality, I'm not sure exactly how that kind of factors into those yeah. algorithmic price setting. But uh, as you said, you know, I think this is definitely uh, an important variable. I think in particular, like I said, when we're referring to the kind of the the mom and pop segment of the of uh, the, the rental space, I think that's probably, yeah. you know, factoring a lot more heavily into their decision making. Uh, if you've got, you know, if you're if you're a, a big property owner that has hundreds of units and you lose, you know, one good tenant and, and have a vacancy that yeah. maybe sits for a few months, that's not going to really affect the bottom line as much as if you have, you know, a single duplex and, and one of your tenants leaves and yeah. you have a vacancy for months or have a bad experience with a tenant. And so I think that's also why, you know, maybe prices tend to be a little bit stickier for um, yeah. And those kind of smaller rental properties as well, you know, if those mom and pop landlords do get a good tenant in, I think they want to keep that person there as long as possible. And so maybe they're a little bit more hesitant to um, to to really raise prices significantly. Right. Tracy, I just want to point out, uh, I really like my uh, landlord. You love your landlord? She is, she's very <laughs> attentive. We have a very good relationship. So even though I started the episode saying I was anxious, if she is listening to this, I hope uh, she hears that uh i really enjoy where we live and i really enjoy our uh uh the 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 landlord she should uh, factor yes. your consistency yes, yes, into exactly. her pricing Fact, algorithm never been yes yes exactly excellent okay chris just on this topic I, I mean i do find this fascinating so let me ask about this in a slightly different way which is over the past few years, given the rise of some of these algorithmic pricing services, given also the rise of the number of big landlords who seem to be moving into the multifamily space or becoming a bigger part of that space, do you see an impact on prices? So for instance, are they more volatile, more reactive than they mm. used to be when we maybe had Great a question. rental landscape that was more about small mom and pop landlords? That definitely could be the case that we're seeing a little bit more of volatility, kind of bigger swings in, in either direction in rent prices. Uh, I think one one kind of piece of evidence that's maybe kind of interesting and relevant here, um, the Cleveland Fed actually put out a, a really interesting working paper recently where they dug into, you know, you, you mentioned kind of briefly that this difference between uh, the trends that you would see in our rent index versus what's happening in the official CPI measures. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this paper was really meant to kind of like disentangle those differences. And so what they did was uh, essentially take the underlying micro data that feeds into the official CPI estimates and reconstructed an alternate index that's using a methodology similar to how apartment list and other kind of private sector sources calculate our rent indexes. So essentially looking at, you know, rather than all households, looking at only new tenants and using kind of a repeat rent uh, methodology similar to ours. And so what that found was basically that the, the this kind of new index that they constructed uh, follows a very similar trend to what we see in our index, but the, the swings are a little bit less extreme. And I, I do think that probably this comes down to 
the the difference in sample as i said you know the apartmentless index is heavily skewed towards uh, this large professionally managed segment of the market whereas the bls data is designed to be representative of the market as a whole and so yeah. that kind of suggests to me uh that we are seeing you know a, a bit of kind of what you described that these uh that the large professionally managed buildings are going to be a little bit more reactive in their pricing and that those uh those swings as i said you know when, when rents are going up they might go up a little bit quicker and when they're going down with that seasonal trend those those winter dips might be a little bit more pronounced as well um you know it is it could also be the case that there is maybe just different uh demand dynamics happening at different segments of the market so this right. might not all come down to just that kind of uh algorithmic pricing alone but i do think it's certainly a factor there well let's talk a little bit more about the picture right now and what's happening because so we've had we had this huge rent boom everyone knows the price of rent surged especially basically all the measures private measures public measures etc everything went up a lot but it seems like there are a number of factors now that and we've touched on some of them that are reversing so the labor market is slowing wage growth is slowing new job creation is not what it was a year ago household formation as you mentioned that ship that boomed and now there's already some talk about like okay well maybe like people are getting roommates again which as we talked about i think it was with um james egan that's that right. that's like a factor in shrinking household formation i didn't understand all these terms until uh just a few months ago when we talked about that but so that's shrinking household formation and then you know and we talked about it in the intro the the apart the the multifamily industry is just like booming and those the, those construction numbers haven't really don't seem to have slowed down at all yet and so like how much of like a sort of like confluence of factors could there be or how unusual of a situation could be where there's a number of potential drivers of reduced demand and at the same time the supply creation has been off the charts like what do you see happening uh, with this uh, combo of drivers yeah you know as i said we've been seeing already that our national rent index has been declining for the past four months you know as i said that all in and of itself isn't necessarily atypical but the decline that we've been seeing recently has been notably sharper than uh than the usual seasonal trend and so it does seem like like some of these factors are finally kind of uh colliding and coming to fruition in a way that's really resulting in a big shift in the market and, and i do think you know it, it's really kind of uh the things that you just laid out there on the demand side things really are cooling down quite a bit obviously you know after a year plus of extreme skyrocketing rent growth as well as just broad-based inflation eating away at non-housing budgets folks are finding that their budgets just aren't going as far and so fewer folks are able to afford to strike out on their own uh, also with, you know, kind of, yeah. as you said, kind of a cooling labor market, recession fears, even people that maybe could currently afford to strike out there on their own are possibly delaying those moves. And so uh, demand has really cooled down significantly. And on the supply side, we are seeing really, uh, as you said, a historic boom there. We've got right now uh, more multifamily units under construction that than at any point since 1970. Wow. A lot of that supply is expected to hit the market in 2023. And so I do think that, you know, we we aren't necessarily expecting to see a prolonged slide in rents, but uh, I think these days of, you know, extreme rent growth are, are definitely behind us. Why is that construction boom happening? Because for the past few years, you would have expected 
I mean, we talk a lot about on the show about supply chain issues, how that impacted housing. You saw the big gap between single family housing starts and completions, supposedly because of a lot of supply chain issues. You, At a minimum, you would have inspected expected some big multifamily builders or investors to have a more uncertain outlook for yeah. the past two or three years. But that doesn't seem to have translated into any sort of construction slowdown. So why is that? You know, I think despite kind of the factors that you mentioned, the, the outlook for multifamily has continued to remain pretty strong. And uh, I, I think even as we talk about the market slowing down a little bit over these past few months, that's still a, a very minor decline when we think about it relative to what's happened over the past couple of years. So prices down 3% from the August peak, but still up 20% compared to their March 2020 level. And so, you know, we, we have really seen that uh, that rent prices are continuing to go up. And over the long run, we are seeing strong demand. And, and so I think uh, that is... Uh, creating kind of a, you know, maintaining sort of a positive outlook for the multifamily industry. And, uh, can I, and, you know, I, can I ask sorry. this question in a slightly different way? Like what is the bull case for multifamily here? Like what, like what hmm. gives these big investors the confidence to keep building, um, in, at the rate that we've seen recently? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think when we just look kind of, uh, holistically, it, it's definitely the case that, the U.S. housing market is still undersupplied. You know, the, there are kind of various estimates out there on on how big that gap is. But uh, Freddie Mac, for example, estimates that we're uh, have a shortage of about four million housing units right now. And uh, you know, we we are still seeing kind of more and more of uh, you know, obviously millennials are the largest generation, but Gen Z is also a large generation that's continuing to come of age and to uh, form their own households. And there is still a, a lot of pent up demand there, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, new household formation that we could see going forward. And so I, I think that's really uh, kind of the, um, I, I, I say macro level, I guess that would be mm -hmm. kind of the, the broad picture. I think a lot of this also varies geographically as well. Yeah. Uh, a lot of this construction is happening in Sunbelt markets and in those markets in particular have been continuing to draw really, really strong demand. Yeah, I was just going to ask actually that question because you can like point on a chart to production of new apartments uh, going up. But of course, it's not really a commodity because, uh, you know, new apartments being built in Nashville or Dallas don't help me as a renter in New York City. Can you talk a little bit more about the geographical distribution of where this new supply is coming up? As I said, a lot of this is coming in in the Sunbelt markets. So when we look at you know new permitting activity per capita, so how many new housing units are being permitted as a, a proportion of the existing number of housing units in a given market. Uh, Austin is far and away the leader there, uh, but the really, you know, the the ones that are seeing kind of the most permitting activity are really a lot of those Texas markets, Florida market, Phoenix, uh, and the big coastal, you know, superstar cities in contrast, places like New York, San Francisco, Boston, we're really not seeing that same level of activity. And so uh, the, the markets that, you know, are kind of the nation's most expensive ones, the ones that have been 
undersupplied for so long, we are continuing to see that be a problem where uh, they are still underbuilding. Um, just in, in terms of, I guess, the factors and motivations that drive apartment construction, can you talk to us a little bit about financing? Like, what is a typical financing structure question. if I want to build a big, you know, apartment building of some sort? Do I take out, you know, a floating rate loan or am I so big that maybe I'm issuing my own bonds? Like, how does that actually work? You know, that's a great question that isn't necessarily my particular area of expertise. Okay, so that's fair. Um, I, I, I don't have no kind worries. of the concrete details there. But, you know, I, I will say that uh, when we talk about kind of single family versus multifamily yeah. uh, construction, obviously, single family has slowed down quite a bit recently. Uh, and, and that is in response to sort of rising interest rates, obviously hit mortgages as well. And so the, the rising interest rates really hit demand on the single family side in a way that they don't on the multifamily side. Yeah, that, that was uh, kind of my question. Project, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and multifamily projects, I would also say, are just kind of bigger and more complex and are un endeavors that unfold over a longer period of time. And so maybe a little bit less uh, reactive to those kind of short term fluctuations in the market. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to go back to, you know, we talked about household formation or maybe, well, I don't know, household deformation lately. And maybe people get roommates again. They're feeling a little less confident. I Another like sort of maybe it's like medium term trend and it seems like during the pandemic, we did start to see a bit of a millennial baby boom, um, my understanding. And so I guess when people have kids, they're like, well, maybe we'll move out of the city, move out of a multi-family. This actually, I already have a second question. Uh, <laughs> but the first question is like, how does that factor into it? And again, you know, we were talking about, I said in the beginning, like all these things have been going in good for multifamily developers. Could this be like a meaningful, like medium term setback if there's some sort of structural shift among millennials, pretty huge generation right now, in which actually, you know what, we thought we were cool, but in the end, we ended up boring like everyone else and we moved out to the <laughs> suburbs. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I think that is actually something that we've already been seeing play out in our data is this kind of shift uh, away from uh, the, the downtown areas and, and towards the suburbs to a certain extent. Uh, when we look at our rent data and, and break that out by 
you know, the core cities of major metros yeah. versus their surrounding suburbs. We've actually found that since the start of the pandemic, uh, rent growth has been notably faster in uh, in the suburbs of big oh, metros as compared to the core cities. Uh, so I think some of this, you know, is, is maybe due to uh, just changing preferences because of the pandemic itself. Folks, you know, maybe not feeling as safe in the early phases of the pandemic, being in a dense urban environment, wanting to, to space out a little bit more. Remote work is also a factor here. Uh, but as you said, I think, you know, the, the millennial generation is now aging into this phase of uh, of wanting to settle down and, and start families. And uh, and so, you know, I, I think we can we definitely are starting to see some of those shifts already start to play out. All right, I have another question, which is like, so I have two kids, but unlike other people, I actually am cool and I don't want to move to the suburbs. Like, <laughs> This episode is just Joe taking like <laughs> advice on handling his rent. No, this is this is a this is going to be a gripe. This is there's a gripe. Okay. Like, I don't want to move to the suburbs. I like living in Manhattan. That being said, you know, every once in a while when we look like new developments and they're like, oh, really cool. And they have like a pool room and they have like a doorman, which is all stuff I've never uh had before they're like terrible for families and they don't none of these buildings have like uh, you know like they'll like call it a two-bedroom and the second bedroom will like be a closet like really and then like god forbid like a third bedroom or something like never you never find it why is it that like all of this like new development they see like none of it seems like suitable for people with kids that's a good question too i think <laughs> you know it, it has been the case that historically uh we do see these kind of shifts that you know as folks kind of age into that uh, phase of life of settling yeah. down and having kids, you know, that has been a pretty predictable pattern that, you know, the, the majority of folks move out of the city and, and towards the right. suburbs. And so I think historically, maybe that, that that demand just hasn't necessarily been there as much. But I do think that, you know, we are also seeing that, uh, as I said, we've been seeing some of these kind of shifts out of the city. But I, I do think that we are have also seen that millennials have kind of different preferences as well and probably have a little bit more of, of uh, a desire for those urban amenities than potentially prior generations and so uh, i i think hopefully that will be something where uh the supply side starts to, to come around and maybe cater to that segment of the market a little bit more but historically i think maybe that that just hasn't necessarily been the case as much and so potentially properties kind of working on a little bit of an outdated model yeah. potentially on, on what folks are desiring let me ask a really basic simple question that we probably should have asked at the very beginning but how low could rents go yeah. from here good question <laughs> what's the outlook <laughs> so i think you know our, our base case for this year is that we're not really expecting to see uh, a decline for full year 2023 we're probably expecting to see very modest positive rent growth maybe a couple of percentage points uh but I, I i think there is the possibility that rents could continue to slide particularly if we do enter a recession this year if the labor market continues to weaken and uh you know we do enter a phase where there's possibly a contraction in household that that maybe reverses some of this household formation that's happened in recent years there's certainly uh the, there is certainly the possibility that rents could continue to trend downward uh as i said that's not really the the base case that i'm working with right now and and even if rents were to continue sliding in you know that downside scenario where potentially we enter a recession uh, i i don't think we're talking about 
declines uh, anywhere near the magnitude that would reverse the increases that we saw in, say, 2021. What's the biggest wild card or the most important factor in that outlook? Like, what would give you reason to pause and say, actually, maybe maybe things could go in a different direction? Is it something like, you know, if there's a recession and unemployment picks up or something like uh, if, if capacity suddenly booms even more? Like, what is what is that that pressure point for the outlook? I would say it, it really is probably just what's happening in the in the broader macro environment and in the mm-hmm. labor market in particular. Uh, as I said, you know, we, we've got kind of record number of, of new units in the construction pipeline. So the supply side of it seems pretty clear that we are going to get a lot of new supply coming online this year. And, and I think the, the demand side is maybe a little bit more of an X factor. Uh, as you know, as, as we've looked at these past few months of economic data, obviously, inflation has already started to come down. There's maybe uh, some some brightening signs that potentially the Fed can achieve, you know, this soft landing that they've been talking about. But at the same time, you know, there is still this sort of recession risk and consumer sentiment, even if it's rebounded a little bit, is still uh, not great. And so I think that really is, uh, you know, probably probably the biggest thing that I'll be keeping an eye on. If, if the labor market continues to weaken and we see heightened unemployment, then that's definitely something that we would expect to impact the demand side of the equation. Uh, and and that, that would maybe be the case where rents continue to slide. You know, I just want to actually go back to the recent decline and uh, in historical context, because you said, right, you know, it's not that weird to get a few of these soft months. The most recent prints do seem to be a little bit more on the unusual, unseasonal side. What are some past comparisons? Yep. Like, what are we mm-hmm. talking about in terms of like what prior downturns looked like? If at the end of 2023, you're like, wow, this really did turn out to be a very different year. It was a bad year. Like, what are we talking about in terms of like magnitude and how far do you have to like go back before in time to like see uh, to understand this context? As I said, you know, when we when we talk about the recent declines, August through December down three yeah. percent. Uh, the past three months of, of rent declines are actually, you know, in the history of our index, which, like like I said, we're going back to 2017 here. Uh, those these past three months, October, November, December, those are the three sharpest declines in the history of our national rent index. For comparison, you know, that three percent decline that we've seen over these past few months is in comparison to say. Uh, a more you know normal year of 2018 or 2019, we were seeing a decline of maybe one and a half percent over over that same stretch of months, and so definitely you know sharper right now than what we've typically seen. Uh, as far as you know what happens in, in kind of times of, of, of sort of broader economic downturns, uh, you know we don't really have the the longer history in our index to be able to to give the direct comparison there, but. Uh, as I said, you know, if you look at just rent CPI, obviously yeah. that's a little bit of a different measure than than our index. But even in the aftermath of of the 2008 recession, there wasn't really a significant decline there. It was basically just flat for a couple of years. So you know, at right. least in nominal terms, we weren't seeing prices come down by a significant amount. Uh, again, because of the differences in in how it's tracked in CPI versus our index, we, we probably were talking about a little bit of a decline in in, in new lease prices. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, to, to answer your question, just in terms of magnitudes of, you know, how much could things come down? I, I think even in that, 
that downside scenario if uh you know if we were to enter a recession on the national level you know maybe five percent i i would say ten percent would be would feel pretty extraordinary to me um obviously again this is something that varies market by market so some markets could could definitely see sharper declines it's really the fact that in great the great financial crisis that rents didn't actually they just stalled but they didn't even plunge that kind of makes me believe that they're sort of like you know, every episode we've done for years is like lessons from the crisis, right? Mm -hmm. In some way, and the lesson yep. for multifamily from the crisis is that it never goes down, which kind of makes me believe that that's sort of like one day that Minsky moment hard landing could come from for the industry. Anyway, Chris Salviati, uh, economist at Apartment List, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots, helping us to finally address a topic that we should have uh, probably touched on a long time ago. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Tracy, I just want to start off by reiterating that I have a very good landlord. She is very responsive when there are issues in the apartment with appliances, etc., and that I hope uh, she's listening and how much we uh, appreciate her uh, responsiveness and yeah, anyway, I just want to get that out of the way again. The fact that you keep addressing your landlord who may or may not listen to this episode makes me think that actually maybe the landlord has a decent amount of pricing power here. Oh. And the more you say it, the well, more shoot. she's going to realize this. Oh, you're right. I'm like totally backing myself into a corner by I'm showing my hand how much we want to stay in the unit. Hey, you should be like, I don't care. I yeah, like moving. Whatever. I like moving. bureaucracy. There's plenty paperwork, of good options. Hassle, all of these new all of these new buildings have great amenities that I can use. You're right. No, I'm but I do, I do think I I mean, the ta my major takeaway from that discussion is that it's good to be a landlord, yeah. and it seems good to be a multifamily landlord. There is a big question mark that you kept alluding to about whether or not, at some point, the boom in the expansion, um, the supply side um, yeah. expansion, whether or not that will come home to roost. Uh, but it seems... I don't know, like, given the structural lack of housing in the U.S., it seems like we're a long way off from that. I'll tweet out the chart when this episode comes out so people know. But, like, we have this index, U.S. Or US multifamily units started for mm. rent. And it's just so far above pre-great financial crisis. I mean, it's way above pre-COVID levels, pre-financial crisis. The last time it was this high, at least on this index, looks like it was like 1986. Oh, wow. So, I mean, this is just like an industry that just wins, 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 wins. But I do think, you know, like, again, I do remember we probably read, maybe even wrote like some stories like, oh, well, millennials be scarred on owning <laughs> homes forever in 2010. And that was a popular thing. And now, like, you know, everyone got boring and they had kids and they moved out to the suburbs and they bought a house if they could. And so I do wonder, I do like buy this idea, like maybe like maybe some some big shift is going to happen. You know, what's interesting. If you chart that line, multifamily yeah. units started for rent versus multifamily units started for sale. Oh, it, it two very different directions. So oh, this for sale yeah. ones is just plunges and the for rent one just keeps going up. Oh, that's a great chart. You know, yeah, yes, we should definitely write that, not just tweet about it. Yeah, no, you're right. Wow, I never looked at this. And okay, there's plenty. There's plenty yeah. on this. Um, the other thing that surprised. Well, you know what? Wait, can I just actually yeah. before I forget? You know, it's interesting, and I don't know if this chart exists, but I think the flip side is that there has been an increase 
in single family units for mm-hmm. rent, which mm-hmm. is not a category of housing that gets a lot of discussion. Yeah. But it is a growing sector of like single family household units, but for the rental market. Anyway, I think that actually is a, there's some interesting stuff here to explore further. For sure. And you know the other thing that surprises me about that whole episode? Yes. We managed to get through it uh, without once saying that the rent is too damn high, which I thought one of us was for sure, uh, for you, sure going to bring you up. You just took care of that for us. Yeah, okay, I did it. Uh, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Chris Salviati. He's at Chris underscore Salviati. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Arman and Dash Bennett at Dashbot. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. And... For more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we post transcripts, Tracy and Tracy and I blog, and we have a weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday. Go there, give us your email, and sign up for it. Thanks for listening. It's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.